Our text this morning is on page 44, if you have a pew Bible. It is uh, Genesis 50, verses 22 through 26. And we're done with Genesis. We'll let the littler ones make their way out. Apparently my children are scattered throughout the congregation. Yes, that's a good thing. You love them well. Thank you very much. Someone was a little exuberant. There we go. There's the last one. That's my boy. All right. He loves water. All right. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as the whole, our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, that we might cherish it and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is quite sad to me that Christopher Hall is not here today. He's somewhere else. Because he always asks me questions about Herman Bovink. And I'm going to talk about Herman Bovink. And for those of you who don't know who Herman Bovink is, which would probably all be all but maybe three of you, and that might be an overestimation. He was one of the theologians of the Dutch Reformed Church. He was one of three important figures theologically that was alive at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. He and Abraham Kuyper were significant figures in the life of the Reformed Church in that time frame. Abraham Kuyper, for those of you who who don't know, he was also a statesman. He also founded the Free University of Amsterdam. That doesn't mean that you could go there for free. It meant it wasn't a state school. Okay, uh, and, and he was also a significant theologian and churchman who had a profound impact upon the Reformed Church there and here. Herman Bovink was known specifically for his dogmatics of theology. That's essentially his systematic theology. He was a great churchman. And the third man was here in America by the name of B.B. Warfield. It was strange that providentially, that in the course of less than a year, all three of these men died. 
It really essentially started with Bavink, who had a heart attack and was on a sickbed. He had some minor recoveries, and one of those recoveries was to attend the funeral of his friend, Abraham Kuyper, who died in November 1920. He couldn't go, of course, to B.B. Warfield's funeral in 1921. His own death happened in uh, July of 1921. And when you're on your deathbed and you know it, certain things come to mind. What really matters rises to the surface. Bavink is quoted as saying this, My learning does not Help me now. Neither does my dogmatics, referring to his gift to the church, his uh, lengthy series on systematic theology. Faith alone saves me. He recognized that in spite of all the good he had done for the church, it was his faith that would enable him to stand before the bar of God and be declared righteous to be saved. His faith and faith alone. It is not just Herman Bavink who has sort of these thoughts and these experiences. John Calvin wrote that we are always heading toward death. It comes near to us, and we must, in the end, go to it. It is the fate of all who live. We will all be in that moment. Some of us, it will happen so fast that we won't even recognize that the moment has come upon us. But for some of us, it will be like Herman Bavink, a year in bed or longer, being able to think and prepare for that time. Joseph has seen that day coming. And this, these are, in a sense, the things that are upon his heart as he embraces the reality of the end of his life. The big idea this morning is that death does not bring God's promises to an end. And that is something we desperately need to keep in mind. Let's begin with the idea that delays are due to God's patience. Life continued for the Holy Family, as it should after Jacob's death. We see here in the text that Joseph and his brothers and their families all remained in Egypt. In other words, none of them had yet left to return to Canaan to fulfill the promise they're remaining in Egypt. And the question then has to come up for us, why is it that they hadn't returned? Was it their unbelief? Was it that God was failing to keep his promise to them? In reality, we see that God was keeping his promise, the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is interesting. This is the first time we see them mentioned that way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For those of you who are Star Wars people, you almost immediately went to the end of the Return of the Jedi. You know, Yoda, Obi-Wan, Anakin, all there, you know. That's not what it's like. He's invoking their name as the people that God has given the covenant to. That it got passed on through them. And he's bringing them up because he's, he's living in light of the covenant promises that God was giving. And we see in Genesis 15, verse 16, that they shall come back here in the fourth generation 
And here's the key thing. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They had not returned to the land because the sin of the Amorites had not reached its fullness. What does that mean? It means that Israel's entrance into the promised land and the subsequent conquest of the Amorites and the other people who were in the land of Canaan was going to be an act of God's judgment upon those nations for their incredible wickedness. A wickedness that has come to an incredible culmination, shall we say. They have been getting increasingly wicked over time. And God says, there is a time in which I am going to come and I'm going to deal with them, but that time has not yet come because their sin, though great, in a sense is not great enough. We get a picture here of the reality that God does not judge prematurely or rashly, but we see that God waits. And there's a sense in which it doesn't make any sense to us. At least we ought to struggle with it, I believe. We see here, we factor in how long that promise was given to Abraham until it was finally fulfilled in the days of Moses, that God waited over 500 years before judging the Canaanites. He is patient. He is not the God of the short fuse. But He waits. That's not just the Canaanites. But we see that He would wait over 500 years before judging Israel, the northern kingdom, with the Assyrian exile. And if you if you read Kings... What becomes immediately clear to you is that from the get-go with Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was that they were guilty of numerous and heinous sins. Everyone is compared, all of the kings are compared uh, of the northern kingdom to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, as, as to whether or not they were, how bad they were, not how good they were, okay? He's the model of badness in kings. Yet God waited 500 years through all of those evil kings and, all, and the way in which they led Israel astray into all kinds of false worship. God waited. He'd wait over 600 years before judging Judah, the southern kingdom, with the Babylonian exile. At least in Judah, you had some good kings. When you look at Israel, there were none. Zilch, nada, nothing. You have a, f- a few good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah that took place in the southern kingdom. And I'm not going to say anything about the north versus south here, okay? All right? I'm a northern guy. Um, but you see, how many years? And, and it culminates, in a sense, with Manasseh and all of... And, uh, um, it just culminates with the fact that they've moved into child sacrifice. Okay? I mean, it was bad, and it gets really bad. And God waited through the badness to the very badness. After the return from the exile, he would wait over 500 years again before judging Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Do you kind of note a pattern here? 
God is very slow in bringing judgment. And that tests our faith at times because we see the wickedness of the world and we we experience the injustice that is done to us or see injustice done to others and we want it like now. We want God to bring judgment on wicked nations like, like now. We don't want Him to wait 500 years, a 1,000 years, who knows how many years. But we have to recognize that God is just, that God is wise, that He allows nations, on the one hand, to harden their hearts in sin, which is what we see in uh, Romans 1, 18 and following. Okay, that God hands them over to increasing sin. They become more and more wicked because they've rejected the truth. And that's what happens. The more a culture rejects the gospel, the more wicked they become. There's a breakdown in all kinds of morality and in all kinds of relationships. You see an increase in sexual immorality of all kinds. You see violence and hatred multiplying. You see the the family relationships being blown to pieces. That's all right there in Romans 1. That's what happens when cultures harden their hearts against God. But he's slow to bring his judicial wrath against them precisely because some of those people will repent. He will bring them to repentance. That is why Peter says, his second letter, the third chapter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, and we, I think we as Presbyterians understand that that doesn't mean everybody in the universe, but all of his people chosen before the, before creation should reach repentance. So Israel needed to know that God was patient, not rash in his anger, that there was time to repent. And we too need to remember that God is slow. He waits, bringing people to repentance. That we should not, while we long for the end of the wickedness to take place, we also should long for the repentance of his people to take place. It stretches us, just as it probably stretched Joseph as he waited for the return to the promised land. The early church, just like us, they needed to know that God was not rushing the final judgment. There's time for him to accomplish his purposes. So God delays, not out of weakness, not out of forgetfulness, but in a grand display of his patience before he displays his justice. He's displaying his mercy, and he will display his justice. So delays are due to God's patience. Secondly, death doesn't destroy our union with Christ. In Genesis 2, we see this covenantal threat. You are to eat from every tree that's in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day in which you eat of that fruit, you will die. Okay? Death was the consequence, was the, the judgment for sin. Paul picks up on this, mentions it in Romans 6. Okay? The wages of sin. It's death. Okay? And so it's easy. It would be easy for us to look at the death of all the Israelites in Egypt as God's judgment. 
it would be easy for us to misunderstand and misinterpret it that way. But the text here gives us signs of God's incredible blessing on Joseph because he believed in the promise. We see that Joseph lived 110 years. This is significant. We mentioned it, I believe, when we talked about the, the lifespan of, of uh, yeah, Jacob when he met with, with Pharaoh. At that point, he was 130, and, it, and Pharaoh was amazed because 110 was like the optimum, you know, that was the sign that the gods were blessing you if you made it to 110. Okay? So in that culture... Joseph is seen as one who was blessed by God because of his advanced age. He was seen as blessed. That God had sustained him. That God had protected Joseph throughout his lifetime. You know, it's always interesting when you have uh, someone who reaches one of those milestone markers, 100 years, 105, 110. Oh, what's the secret of old, you know, to living long? You know, you see those loose reports and you read those in the paper sometimes. And it's interesting because some people will be like, oh, I never smoke and I never drank. And some people will be like, I smoke like a chimney and, and drank a fifth of whiskey every night. You know what Joseph would say? That the Lord was my God. And I lived as long as he had work for me to do here. He would be sort of like Paul in Philippians chapter 1. When Paul was torn as to what to do, uh, you know, it's better for, for me to depart and be with Christ, but it's better for you that I remain. So Paul lived as long as God deemed it was more useful for his people. And then when he had accomplished that which God intended for him to accomplish, God took him home using the Romans in their persecution. So we see that. We also see this note here of Ephraim's children to the third generation. In Egyptian culture, seeing your great-grandchildren was another sign of that you have had a good, blessed sort of life. And so Joseph has seen these things. And not only that, uh, the, the ESV translates the idiom for us, okay? It says that uh, that his grandchildren were born on his knee, literally, that's what it says. And that's that idea. He adopted them as his own, just as Jacob had adopted Joseph's two oldest children to be his own. So, you know, Joseph does the same thing. He adopts these these children as if they were his own. What we see here is the fruitfulness of Joseph's family, which is a fulfillment of the promise that was given to him by his father in uh, chapter 48, the end of chapter 48. And so God is keeping his promises. While we, Though we see the death of Joseph, this is not to be seen as God's judgment. God is keeping his promises. Moses wants us to understand this, to grasp this. Because many of the original audience, their relatives died in Egypt. It is not to be seen as a sign that God forsook them or forgot them. But it just wasn't time yet. As we look at the cross, something significant happened concerning death. For those who are in Jesus Christ by faith, 
for those who trust them, trust him rather, to be their savior from the wrath of God. Death is no longer the penalty for sin. Okay? Death, because Jesus bore the wages of our sin, death is not to be feared like it once was. I, I grew up doing my math homework in high school to mash. Makes sense, doesn't it? Math, mash, just one letter. <laughs> and, you know, one of the common themes that would run through that show would be Hawkeye raging against the triumph of death and hating losing someone to death. We don't sit in that same seat that Hawkeye Pierce sat. We sit in a seat where we see the triumph of Jesus. Because not only did he die for our sins, but he rose again for our justification that we would be placed in a right relationship with God. And so when we see the death of someone who believes, who trusts in Jesus Christ, we're not to rage as though death won. Not at all. We just see it more of as a door to a more fuller fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, we read from, a, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. And they had sort of a, a similar experience to the, the Israelites before the Exodus. The Thessalonians were afraid that the Christians who had died were somehow missing out on God's promise. They were, they were uncertain what to make of this. They thought that the return of Jesus was going to be like, you know, lickety split next week. And they're watching their loved ones die and they're wondering, how does this all fit in this thing together? And Paul tells them that God will bring with him, Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Interesting that he uses a euphemism for death. This idea of falling asleep, of resting. That Greek word is the one that we actually get cemetery from. Because for Christians, we view them as asleep in Christ, resting in his presence. They are with him now, awaiting something significant. Okay, they are alive in the presence of Jesus, they have not been destroyed. Death cannot destroy our union with Jesus Christ. It's not like, okay, I'm alive, I'm united to Christ, and I'm, I'm experiencing that new life of the power of the resurrection that he gives us, as, as Paul talks about in Romans 6. You know, that everything is pretty good, everything is great. Now I get sick and I pass away. Is that bad? Am I to think that somehow now I am severed and separated from Christ? And Paul would say, no, they are asleep in Christ. He's using that same language. They're still united to Christ. It has not destroyed, it has not breached, it has not broken their relationship with Him. They are still in fellowship with Jesus. They are still united and so they will come with Him when He returns for those who are still alive at the end. Paul gives them great hope in the midst of that. A hope that we ought to share. 
And so we see that death does not destroy us precisely because we are united to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, the Jesus who defeated death. Third, last thing. Hopefully we have seen that delays are due to God's patience and death doesn't destroy our union with Christ. But we are to comfort one another with the reality of the resurrection. Yes, I added words if you're following along in the notes. Comfort one another with the reality of the resurrection. Okay, we talked about how uh, for Herman Bovink, it was his faith that rose to the surface as he faced his death. You know, I'm not saved by the things I've done, the works I've accomplished. I am saved by, by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. And so by faith, we see Joseph here. He offers his family hope for the future and a command that is rooted in that very same hope. Hebrews 11 mentions that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He's sort of like the Thessalonians. Like, I know I'm going to die, but I don't want to be left out when God fulfills the promise. That's really kind of what's going on here. Uh, the Hebrew is very quick and direct. We kind of expanded on it there. And, and he just says, I die. He's blunt. He's to the point. It's painful. But he gives them this promise. God will visit you. It means more than just you popping by my house to chat for a while. The idea of visitation in, in this word means to pay attention to someone. It means to change their circumstances in a significant way. And so we see that when God visits He's going to bring blessings or curses. This is the kind of visit like, you know, when the boss shows up. You know, when you have the boss who never shows up and he's now he's there, that either means someone's getting promoted or someone's getting fired. It's that kind of thing. That kind of visit. This is not to have tea and crumpets or whatever it is the British do. Okay? This is serious stuff. And Joseph holds out hope for them because he says, in this visit, he is going to bring you up out of this land. And so he's offering them hope. God is going to fulfill his covenant promises. There's going to be blessing. He doesn't mention yet. I don't know, you know, I don't know if he understood this all yet, but there was going to be curses for the Egyptians who oppressed them for generations. But God's going to bring you up out of this land. He's going to keep that promise. And, the, and his descendants, his, his extended family, through the generations, they were supposed to trust in this promise to sustain them in the hard times, to sustain them through the days of affliction, through the years of slavery that were about to come upon them. So not only does he mention this promise, but he issues a command. He makes them swear on oath that he wants to participate in the, the going into the promised land, and so they are to bring his bones back to the land. And so it says that they embalmed his body, just like they embalmed uh, Jacob's body, but they did not bring him up there now. They kept him in a coffin, which is the same word for ark. The same word that you find in the Ark of the Covenant. And so he was anticipating that day. When God shows up and you leave town, bring me with you. 
don't leave my bones behind. His hope, his desire was to be with God and God's people the days of his life. So what happened? Exodus 13, Moses wants us to know these things. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And so they, when they leave town, they get the ark that contains the bones of Joseph, and that accompanies them throughout their wilderness wanderings. And so when they eventually construct the Ark of the Covenant, they're walking around with two arks, one that has the bones of a dead man who died in faith, and the other that has the covenant with God about how they find life. And they're going to walk through the wilderness for 40 years with these two arks. And after the death of Moses, we find Joshua. And it says this in Joshua 24, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the land, uh, the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. And so the Exodus and Joshua make it very clear that they not only carried his bones and they left Egypt, but they buried him in the proper place. They buried him in the land that his descendants would inherit. It would be their part of the inheritance in the land of Canaan. Is that all we have? This, I think, points us to the hope of the resurrection which in the Old Testament is not found very often. We really don't see it mentioned prominently at all until we get to Daniel 2. And then if you look at Daniel 2, you'll see all kinds of footnotes there. But it says this in Daniel 2. This is the first clear, I believe, mention of a resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame in everlasting contempt. Notice what Daniel talks about there. There will be some who are raised again, and they're going to experience the blessings of God, eternal life. And there are some who are going to be raised again and are going to experience the curses of God, condemnation. It's not as though those who die outside of Jesus, they just die and that's it. They too shall be raised again, but they will go to condemnation in the justice, in the wisdom of God. Not an easy thing to know about, to believe, but Scripture testifies to it. Paul, back to 1 Thessalonians 4, he grounds our resurrection in the resurrection of Jesus there. It is because He rose again from the dead that we are going to rise again from the dead. It's not just 1 Corinthians 15 He talks about this. He's also right here. Okay. As we think about eschatology, that big old word, the last things, there's a lot of confusion about eschatology. And one of the clear things is that the resurrection occurs with what some people call the rapture there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What we should recognize from the basis of the trumpet and the loud voice of the archangel 
that cries out that this is not a secret sort of hidden thing. It, it speaks to something that's public. It's recognizable. It's not like when, uh, see if you're, any of you are old enough to remember this, which is not that long ago, actually. When George Bush went to Iraq and no one knew until he got back, he made a, he made a secret trip to speak to the troops in Iraq, and then he kind of, we didn't find out about it until he was already on the plane, you know, that security measures to protect his life, right? Completely understandable. The return of Jesus uh, is not going to be like that, some sort of, uh, you know, Jesus kind of sneaking in, grabbing a bunch of people, sneaking out. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. If we tie, if we, we recognize it in light of, say, Psalm 149, which we sang this morning, uh, and Romans 16, when it talks about the, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The idea is that Jesus it comes, the, the souls that are with him, their bodies are resurrected, they receive their glorified bodies, they, they, they come with Jesus. We who are still alive, if we still are still alive, those who are still alive, will meet him in the air, and that word does speak a sort of a, a, a powerful Something or other, okay? A seizing, okay? But they meet him in the air, but it's not to go back to heaven. It's to continue to earth, where they will destroy his enemies. I know that's not the popular view that you read about today and Tim LaHaye and all that kind of stuff. But I, be- I believe that is what the scriptures teach. And that is part of what our hope is. Precisely because Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the fact that all who are in Christ will be with Him forever. Encourage one another with the fact that those who die in Christ will be resurrected. They will not miss out on God doing anything in the history of redemption, they're going to be there when it all comes down. And you who are still alive, remember that you too will participate in that when Jesus returns. Encourage them with hope. John Calvin notes that the knowledge of a resurrection is the means of moderating grief for those who are Christians. It tempers our sadness because we know the the loved ones we have who died believing in Jesus Christ, we will see them again. We will fellowship with them again. We will rejoice with them again. And so our parting is merely temporary. Though it's painful, it's not permanent. And that's what sends so many over the edge in grief is the seeming permanence of it. I've been to too many funerals. I have time for one. The first funeral I did as a pastor, I, I helped out. I was, uh, the, the party, the family was, was connected to a family that was in the church. Uh, so they weren't members of the church. And so I just kind of helped out this, I think it was an Assemblies of God pastor. I did some scripture reading, some prayers. He did the main heavy work. He did the heavy lifting of this thing. So I was just kind of there for the ride. And you want to know heartbreak? This man had died of a heart attack. And the wife was so consumed with grief 
that she thought he was alive and that he wanted to go home with her. That's grief without hope. Because it's unwilling to let go. And we know that if our loved ones die in faith in Christ, they're better off than we are. And though, although it is painful, incredibly painful for us, we can let them go because we hand them over to Jesus. That's part of what Paul wants them to understand. You've not lost them. They're still with Jesus. One last quote for today. I don't have many quotes usually, but today I do. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, once, once said that the nearer we live to God while we live, the more ready we will be to dwell forever in his presence when we die. Sometimes there's an indication that we don't really... How we live now indicates that we're not so excited about then, that we're more interested in here and now. Our lives should be marked now by a longing for then. That we consciously think of, I want to prepare for my better fellowship with Jesus Christ by getting to know Him through the Scriptures now, by serving Him, not waiting until I die to serve Him, but serving Him now. So that what I experience is not radically different, just incredibly better. So death shows us what dominates our hearts. Joseph was concerned about the promise of God for his people. That was a good thing. We have a better promise, however, the resurrection. And if we trust in Christ, we will have that. Our encounters with death should drive that hope and the resurrection deeper into our hearts. They should create a deeper longing for the resurrection and the cosmic renewal that comes at the return of Jesus. And when we ponder our future with Him, we should be cultivating our relationship with Him in the now. So brothers and sisters, encourage one another with the great news of what Christ has done in His resurrection and will do in our resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we came uh, in the end of Genesis with the end of a person who was treasured in your sight, at least his earthly existence. Because we do believe that because of Christ, He lives and reigns with you now. And we long for the day when we shall see Him and everyone else who loves Christ come on the clouds. Reckon us a deeper longing for that. That it would sustain us in the midst of our hardship just as that hope was intended to sustain the Israelites in their hardship and, and slavery. 
that though so much about our life is uncertain, that is not uncertain at all. So uh, continue to shape our hearts and minds by the promises of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.